This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Those were Paul's words to Timothy, his last will in Testament, and by application to each one of us that we are to study God's Word, and that's why we're here for the next hour to open God's Word together. If you are a first-time listener to the Bible line here at 88.7, or we can be heard around the world at wagp.net, we welcome you. And if you have a particular question or issue or challenge that you're facing and trying to understand the meaning or application of a scripture, or you're looking for biblical counsel as it relates to your home or life or ministry, if we can be of help, by God's grace, we will do the best we can. And all you need to do, again, pick up the phone. The South Carolina 843 exchange is 525-1859. When you call, you can go on the air live, or you can simply dictate your question. We also receive questions uh, directly here at TBL, that's for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. All right, with that said, Walter, good to have you here behind the board today. Let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right, glad to be here, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Donna out of Bluffton, South Carolina. She writes, I have never studied eschatology before, and I want to now. I have been in I have been to the Search of Scriptures website and have not found a study there. Would you please recommend a good, solid teacher for me? There is so much false information out there and false teachers, but I completely trust your guidance. Well, uh, Donna, great question. Maybe several suggestions. Uh, Number one, I recently completed a 31-week study on Sunday mornings. We didn't do it in 31 weeks in a row. We did it over the course of about 16 months uh, because, you know, some Sundays uh, it's Mother's Day and you don't want to preach on the beasts, you know, coming out of the sea of... Uh, revelation. That's better for, you know, Father's Day maybe. But nonetheless, um, you could listen to those. There's charts, there's diagrams. Certainly the audio will be helpful if you're able to visually look at the charts. Uh, So you can go to our uh, Search the Scriptures website, and it's all posted there, all 31 messages. In fact, they're beginning to air right now, aren't they, Walter? Yes, sir, they are. Yeah, so you can hear them also at 88.7 FM. And if you don't have the Search the Scriptures app, you might want to download that. I also have taught the book of Revelation verse by verse. In fact, the final message in the series is I did the whole book of Revelation in one message. In either case, um, there's about 72 hours worth of verse-by-verse teaching, and you're going to deal with all the major eschatological issues. Another suggestion, just again from our home side, would be to take the course at the Institute of Biblical Studies. So you should have been able to find that. That should be on our homepage, Walter. Maybe we should tweak the uh, website there where people can click on a box on the homepage for the Institute of Biblical Studies, and and we offer a number of courses, and one is on the subject of eschatology. Uh, And then I would recommend, really, a classic textbook. It's done by one of my professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. 
He taught there until he was 93. He just died, oh, three, four years ago, Dr. Dwight Pentecost. He did, as his doctoral dissertation in 1956, um, he created a book out of that called Things to Come. Again, he just lived until about four years ago, but that is still considered the classic textbook on eschatology. It deals with all the... Eschatos, maybe that's a new term to some of our listeners. It just means end things or last things. And so when we speak about the eschaton or eschatology, we're speaking from the Greek word, the study of last things, like pneumatology. Pneumatos is a Greek word for spirit, so it's a study on the Holy Spirit. So uh, he deals with all the major issues, uh, amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism. How do people get to these particular positions. And what Dr. Pentecost does so well is he doesn't create a straw man. You know, I see amillennialists say, well, this is what dispensationalists believe. And I say, that is so unfair, so untrue, not even accurate. You know, you might find one quacky, quirky guy out there who came up with some position and they say, this is what they believe. Not true. So he does a great job and he doesn't create straw man. If anything, he creates what I call an iron man. That's what you want to do. You want to um, make sure that you accurately portray a person's position. And then if you don't agree with it, scripturally take it apart. Why do you come to that conclusion? So that's what I would say to Donna. Good question. Let's go to the next. Our next uh, question comes from Bill, Pastor Carl. He would like to know if he is creme- cremated, does that hinder his going to heaven? No, it doesn't. Um, you know, again, there's as much hope for the body as there is for the soul to get into heaven, you have to receive Christ as your Savior. And if you're not absolutely 100% sure that heaven is your home, Bill, I would send you to either the Search the Scriptures website or WAGP website or Community Bible Church website. And on all three of those on the home page, there is a presentation entitled, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? And if you happen to be local, I do that live once a month or twice a month at Community Bible Church. I just did it Sunday night. We had around 15 people who came, and we'll do it again the last Sunday night in July. And so I walk people through that little booklet and presentation that explains the gospel. So I'm a little concerned by the nature of your question. Maybe you've got that issue settled, but usually when cremation is asked, it's more in reference to the resurrection body. And think about it logically. I mean, there are people who are drowned at sea. Before long, the fish have uh, eaten their skeletons and there's nothing left. Uh, There are people who die out in the woods. And just like deer antlers every fall are eaten by the squirrels, eventually the bones and everything else eventually disappear. From dust you were made, from dust ultimately you will return. There are people like just two days ago, that jet where the pilot lost consciousness, he uh, blew up in the woods of Virginia, and everyone was literally vaporized in the fire. Nothing left, everything gone, no bodies to recover concerning the pilot and a mother with her small child. Is that a problem for God? Certainly not. God could drop an atomic bomb over my body and he'd find me. Uh, He would raise me up. Now, is cremation the best way to dispose of the body? My short answer is no. And I have messages on this. If you go to my Genesis series and I deal with the death of Sarah, you might want to listen to that. Uh, Biblically speaking, 
uh, Christians buried. In fact, the only folks in the scripture who are burned or cremated are done by pagans because they had little respect for the creator God. God created the body uh, in his own image. He created every aspect of man in his image, his mind, his will, and in his emotions. And so when the saints of God died in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints, they were buried, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they're all buried in the New Testament. In the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul likens the death of a believer to a seed being put on the ground, that when you put what appears to be a dead seed, there's an expectation that life will come from that dead seed. Well, likewise, when a believer plants a body in the ground, he does so with the expectation that God is going to raise that body up. That's what we believe. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, the person inside the body at the moment of death is home with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord, but the body itself is still going to be resurrected. So your loved ones are not up in heaven in their resurrection bodies. They haven't received those bodies yet. And so that is yet to happen. That is still in the future. And again, when God himself performs a funeral in the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, what did God do? Again, some things are uh, done just by example. There's no command in Scripture like with the office of elder where we are commanded to have elders in the church. There's no direct command to appoint deacons in the church. But there's an assumption that every local church will have deacons. Why? By example, Acts 6, by qualifications, uh, 1 Timothy 3. There is an assumption that a local assembly will have elders and deacons. So there are some things that we do simply by example, not necessarily a direct command. Uh, with that said, by the example of God himself, he, the Lord, Yahweh, buried Moses. God, why didn't you cremate him? Well, because God pictured for us what we should do. So cremation... There's actually a Presbyterian doctor who supposedly is given credit for the first cremation, uh, but it was actually the Unitarians who promoted it. So about 100 years after the founding of our nation in 1876, the Unitarians began to raise their little ugly fists in the face of Bible-believing Christians because, of course, they denied the resurrection of the body and life after death, and they said, let's see what your God can do with these bodies that we've cremated into ash. Well, the thought is unthinkable in Israel. There's no crematoriums anywhere in Israel, not just because of the Holocaust, but because of basic biblical belief. And in our country, in 2018, for the first time in American history, we had more people cremated than were buried. So is it a problem if you've cremated your loved ones? No. If you ask me what you should do, I would say bury. You say it's a little more expensive. It doesn't have to be as expensive as some people make it. You can have a pine box. You don't have to have one made out of solid oak or, you know, or walnut or some other expensive exotic wood. Um, so you don't have to drive the costs up necessarily. But with that said, it is a little more expensive, but you do what's important. You buy a car and you want all, I want the screens. I want the technology. I want all these bells and whistles. Why? Because it's important to you. Well, your last will and testament in some respects is at your funeral. And I can tell you, having done over 500 funerals, I can tell you that when there's a body present versus an urn or a little picture, the funeral packs so much more punch. 
I see people break down. I see people grieve when there is the reality that this loved one is gone right there in front of their eyes. That's a good thing. It helps people to grieve, but too, it helps people to face the reality of death. And some of you have loved ones. You have daughters, sons, uh, cousins, brothers, sisters, maybe even a mother or father. And if you precede them in death, you want your funeral, one, to have the gospel preached, but you want your body there. That's a testimony. It might be at your funeral. Almost every funeral I do, by God's grace, someone, someone finds Christ as their Lord and Savior. And uh, you take away some of that authority, uh, some of that um, that picture that God gave us concerning death and, and the picture of how we should treat the body when you cremate. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for today's Bible line. Our next question comes from Bob out of Okatee, South Carolina. He would like to know what you would say to someone who told you that, and I quote, the Bible has been translated so many times through so many centuries that it is impossible to be certain that it, if is, that it is God's word anymore. What stands out in your mind as the most convincing aspect of the Bible and proof that it is divinely inspired as God breathed? Well, I wrote a little booklet for Answers in Genesis in their apologetic series, and uh, one of the chapters was how to prove the Bible is true, and I've actually uh, printed that out, and I make it available for people for free when they come to meet the pastor. And through that, I go through five evidences for the uniqueness of the Bible. Of course, fulfilled prophecy is something that's unique to the Bible. I had a gentleman, I think he was from a Muslim background on Sunday, and very hostile, very combative, and I said, look, there's not a single prophecy in the Quran. You can't produce one. You can't produce a single prophecy in the Book of Mormon or the Vedas or the Upanishads or any other religious book you can think of. Only God knows the future. And so only God prophetically writes of things hundreds of years before they happen specifically. I'm not talking about the vague prophecies of Nostradamus that could apply to 10,000 situations, many of which, by the way, did not happen, didn't even come close to happening. In fact, he said the world would end in 1999. That was always the big question in the 70s and 80s. What about the prophecies of Nostradamus? I said, these things are so vague. And I would I would say, here, here here's one of his prophecies. And I, I had it memorized and how, how they uh, linked President Kennedy's death to Nostradamus. I mean, it was just so stupid, not even close to for a thinking person to embrace. So, but your question is, I know you're, you're, you're hitting it on two ends, but you're dealing more here with this whole issue of the transmission of Scripture. And God promised in the Psalms to preserve His Word, and indeed He has. God has protected His Word. And how do we know that? Manuscript evidence. So when someone throws out at you, the Bible has been translated slash copied so many times, that you don't know where the original is, they're wrong. Now, it is true concerning some New Testament texts that we have 101% of the Bible. In other words, we have a manuscripts where sometimes, like if you opened my Bible and many, many pages throughout it, I have ink, I have notes, I have comments that I put out in the margin, maybe something God's teaching me, maybe a cross-reference that was meaningful to me. Well, people were no different when they had a, their a personal copy of Scripture. Not many people did because papyri was so expensive. They would put a note out in the margin. And so on occasion, if I said, hey, I heard you had Ephesians 1, 
I don't have that, but I heard you had that chapter copied. Could I borrow it? And maybe I would borrow your copy and in turn put some of your notes in my copy. And then we might in turn copy it again and a whole family of manuscripts are produced from that one copy with your note in it. So there is a science called textual criticism, not criticizing the scripture, but evaluating to try to find out of the 101%, and this is only an issue with New Testament texts, what the original 100% is. And by the way, even those little uh, nuances, they affect zero doctrinally. Nothing uh, is influenced by those notes. With that said, God has preserved his word. We have thousands upon thousands of copies of the New Testament manuscripts. Yet people don't question Shakespeare's, one of his most famous plays. They only have 12 copies, and none of them are original, and they're just copies of the copies. Oh, but Shakespeare, you know, he's reliable. Uh, Listen, God has, um, in his mercy, protected his scripture. Take the Old Testament, for instance. Uh, There was a discovery in um, 1949, the year after Israel became a nation, there was a shepherd boy down in the area known as Qumram. I bring people there every time we go to Israel, and God willing, when we go in September, we'll be down in Qumram. And he was out there herding sheep in the hills, and you know how people like to toss stones, and he was just a young man. He threw a stone into a cave, you know, trying to see if he could get it through the hole of the cave, and he heard something break, and he went in there, and he found this clay pot that he had just broken in, inside of it were ancient scrolls. They were put there by the Essenes. The Essenes were afraid the Romans were going to come down and crush them, and they wanted to protect God's word. So they found cave after cave after cave after cave of what we call today the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, For instance, take the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a very long book. It's not the longest book in the Bible, but it's the longest book among the prophets of the Bible. In fact, the scroll of Isaiah is longer than all 12 of the minor prophets, as we often call them, put together. And so before Isaiah was found, and this copy of Isaiah was dated about 200 years before Christ. Before that, the only copy we had of Isaiah was uh, produced by the Masorites, and uh, that was around 900 AD. So now we found a copy of the prophet Isaiah that was approximately a thousand plus years older than the previous copy we had. And when they compared the copies, the 900 AD with the 200 BC copy, there was a difference in basically five letters, five letters. Uh, for instance, some of those things were um, would be similar without getting too complicated here to maybe the way we spell Savior, S-A-V-I-O-R, and the way the Brits spell it, S-A-V-I-O-U-R, or the word color would be the same. And so there were some stylistic changes that had taken place over the centuries and a few of those five letters. Why? Because this is what a Jew did. A scribe's job in copying Scripture was considered a high and holy job. He believed he was copying the very breath, the very word of God Almighty, And he took that seriously. And so, for instance, when you copy Hebrew, remember there's no vowels. There are vowels in Hebrews, but they're not written. The mind supplies them. Well, when the Masorites, around 900 or so, you know, began to create copies of the Hebrew Bible, 
they pointed the text. That is, they inserted the vowels. So like when uh, I learned Hebrew, I learned learned off of a pointed text. Um, you know, Jewish people today who live there, they don't really use pointed vowels. They Their mind supplies it. I, I need the pointed vowels. It's not that I can't read any words without it, but it's so much easier to have the vowels supplied there. And so... Um, when you wrote a copy of the scripture, you just put the consonants, your mind supplied it, and you went from page to page to page to page, I mean, end to end, 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 end of the same scroll. And then what did they do? They counted the number of letters on a page, they divided it by two, and that should be the middle letter. And if the middle letter on the original did not match the copy, then they started all over again. That's how serious. So it is an argument of ignorance. It's what we call a smokescreen. Maybe they heard it from someone and they think it's a legitimate question. It's not. It's a question that it reflects unmitigated ignorance. And so I would suggest one of two things. One, maybe for the short run, get my little booklet that you could give to someone how to prove the Bible is true. It's available on Amazon. I don't make any money off of it. Uh, it's just we sell it. at The only one who makes money is Amazon. Um, but you can also get a free copy if you come to meet the pastor, or better still, if you're real serious, take the course on bibliology. And it's not for the faint of heart, over 500 pages in notes. And when you take that course, we deal with the transmission and the protection of Scripture in one of those sections. Good question. Let's go to the next. And 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from John, and he would like to know your opinion, Pastor Carl, on the preaching of Tony Evans. Well, Tony Evans is a brother in Christ. Let me just say that clearly, unashamedly. We both went to the same seminary. In fact, he graduated the year before I um, got there. In fact, uh, my first year there, he came into one of our classes to visit one of his professors. And, of course, the church that he pastors is not far from where the seminary itself was. Uh, I aired him here on WAGP for a long time, decades. But some years back, he began to waffle on some critical issues, not issues that would discount him as, you know, a false prophet, you can have a doctrine that represents an untruth and still have the gospel. And so there's a difference between a false prophet and a false teaching. And sometimes you can have a real believer who teaches something that's wrong, i.e., you can have a Pentecostal who teaches that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, but who teaches that you can lose your salvation. That's a false teaching in my view. Um, you can't lose your salvation. It's eternal life. You can't lose something that's eternal. It's given the moment you believe. The one who believes has, present tense, eternal life. Jesus promises to keep us, but that would be a false teaching. Well, Dr. Evans began to waffle in a couple of realms. One, uh, he was teaching with his daughter, Priscilla, on cruises over mixed audiences. And so he began to, for the first time in his ministry, separate what 1 Timothy 2 says, a man should, a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. And he's speaking in the, you know, the proclamation of Scripture and so forth. And, and so he began to say, well, that's only true in the local assembly. 
but that's not necessarily true on a cruise. And so his daughter, you know, would open up the scriptures and he'd teach one hour and she'd teach the next to a mixed audience. That was in violation of scripture. That was in violation of what he taught. You can go back to his old messages. And he was contradicting the very things he taught earlier. The bigger issue that forced me without exception to pull him off of WAGP is a doctrine that he created. No one else believes it. No one else coined the term but Dr. Evans, transdispensationalism. To take all the air out of the balloon, basically what he began to teach was that a person could go to heaven without believing in Jesus. And actually, the view he held to was more what's called uh, the view espoused by Seventh-day Adventists where Seventh-day Adventists say, well, God judges you on the light you have. Well, that's true. But the conclusion they make from that is that if you were not given the light of the gospel, that you could go to heaven. Well, that's not true. Um, The one who believes in the Son has life. The one who does not believe does not have life. Um, Jesus made that crystal clear. It's not like there's a future judgment where God is going to, in the future, make a determination whether or not we're going to heaven and hell, that, that has already been done. When Adam sinned, we sinned in and with Adam. We're not victims of Adam's sin. We were participants with Adam. And so man is already born dead in his trespasses and sins. And so in John three sixteen, whoever believes in him has eternal life. And then for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him Uh, should not perish but have eternal life. And then Jesus said, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's already determined. Guilty is imprinted across your forehead. Condemned. By nature, Paul can say in Ephesians 2, we are a child of wrath. So if I believed what Dr. Evans has taught, and he he connected it with the term dispensationalism, I'm not sure why, to try to make it maybe sound more theological. If I believed that, I would share the gospel a whole lot less. I mean, why why incriminate a person? Why give them light? Why make them, you know, potentially accountable? We're already accountable. I mean, I wouldn't take the time that we take to support missionaries. By God's grace, Community Bible Church has over 350 missionaries we support every single month across the planet. Why do it? Because without Jesus Christ, people are lost and under the judgment of God. So Dr. Evans at that point denied a central doctrine of the Christian faith. And um, hundreds of Christian radio stations took him off the air, and they should have, and we did for that reason. I have no animosity towards Dr. Evans. He preached at Community Bible Church once. But this was a new position that he took, and it was a departure from historic Christianity. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from Jessica P., she would like you to address once saved, always saved, as it relates to Christians falling away. What about professed Christians who live in habitual sin? And if you were saved as a teenager but off and on lived for, lived for Christ, is that just a part of the sanctification process? How might that be different from someone who is living a sinful life, i.e. in homosexuality, 
pornography, etc., and excusing it or justifying it as not a sin? All right. So first, let me just say, this is a great question, Jessica. Um, You might want to go again to search the scriptures, type in basic discipleship, and the first of those lessons deals with the eternal security believer, actually with assurance and eternal security, which are two distinct doctrines. There are people who say, I know I'm saved. They have assurance, but they're not sure they'll be saved 10 years from now. They think they can lose their salvation. The Bible teaches both the eternal security. On what basis can you have a true assurance? Because there are some people who think they are eternally secure, and they think that on the basis of a false assurance. But Jesus was very clear. In fact, I hit this verse in Sunday's message. He said, all that the Father gives me, underscore that in your mind, all, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him, referring to the Father, the will of God the Father who sent me. This is the will of him, God the Father who sent me, that of all, there it is again, He has given me, I lose nothing, or some English text says, I lose none, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So the moment you believe, you are granted with this gift called eternal life. And again, it's not earned or merited. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so to say that you can lose your salvation is, one, to say that Jesus is a liar, because Jesus said all, without exception, losing not a single one, he raises them up on the last day. That would make Jesus a liar. Not only would it make him a liar, it would make him a sinner. Listen, he said he came to do the will of the Father, and he underscores it three times that the will of the Father is that everyone, without exception, who looks or beholds or believes in the Son may have eternal life. That's the promise. And so for Jesus to um, say that the Father will raise someone, that he will raise up someone on the last day, and not for that to happen, uh, then, then he is indeed a sinner. Because, look, he said he didn't come to disobey the Father's will, but to obey the Father's will. And the Father's will is that every single one, without exception, will be raised up by the Lord in the last day. And two, it's to say that he's weak. He's uh, not the omnipotent God that the Scripture makes him out to be. Now, most people who deny the doctrine of eternal security haven't thought that through, but in effect, that is what they are saying. And so Jesus made this statement to go a little bit deeper into your question. In John chapter 10, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Listen, if we're one of Christ's sheep, we are characterized by following him. So when you mention, okay, I was raised up in the church, I seemingly followed Christ, and then I got away from the Lord. Well, it might have been that you got out of fellowship, But it might have been that the reason you were, quote-unquote, following Jesus when you were raised up is, one, you were obedient to your parents, you're under their protective care, but who you really are at your core was seen. When you left home, the, the fence was gone, and who you really are was seen at that point. Did you really know Christ? And again, we're not talking about perfection here, but we are talking about a new direction. 
when God gives you the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says he makes you a new creation. In other words, when you are credited with Christ's righteousness by putting your faith in him to forgive your sin, and there's an assumption there that you're willing to call sin, sin, then he places the Holy Spirit in you. You become a new creation. The old things have passed away. Everything has become new. A new life has started. And so there is a new direction. And that's what Jesus is underscoring here. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give, because we don't earn it, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So it's not that you are holding on to God. God is holding on to you. And so when you think of not just eternal security, but assurance, assurance of salvation is given on several levels. Initially, on the basis of the finished work of Christ. How can I say to a new Christian, I can baptize you if you've believed in Christ? Well, because they've exercised faith. And in faith, when you call on Jesus in faith, he saves you. And he says you can know that you have eternal life. Not hope, wonder, think you can know. You can be certain. He that believes has eternal life. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So initially, a, a new believer can say, yes, I know I'm saved. How do you know? Because salvation is not earned. I've received the gift of God. Gifts aren't earned. They're humbly received which makes Christianity distinctly different from all the other religions of the world. And I say biblical Christianity because there's forms of Christianity that has nothing to do with what's reflected in Holy Scripture. And so I can initially know on the finished work, listen, if good works saved, if good works even helped save, as taught in Roman Catholicism, you could never know that you're saved. You couldn't know that you have eternal life because how would you know until you died whether you did enough good that was needed or the good things that you did, you did well enough and faithfully enough. You wouldn't know. And so, of course, it's logical in Roman Catholicism to say, with the exception of those the church is deemed to be saints, no one can know they're saved. That's not true according to the Bible. So you have to ask, is my scripture is the scripture my authority? A second level in which God gives assurance is through the inner testimony of the Spirit. You know, you hold a brand new baby and the child's alive, he's screaming, he's made his entrance into the world known, but he's not, you know, fully consciously aware of that many things yet. But as he begins to grow, one day he, he looks at you for the first time and he responds and he smiles at you. And, you know, one day he's looking at his fingers, that he's got little fingers that God created him with. And, and the world begins to open up as he learns to, to, to crawl and to talk and to walk and to make his presence known. And that's what happens when we're saved. Initially, I know I'm saved on the basis of, of the finished work of Christ. But then the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I've become a child of God. There's a new inner awareness uh, that something has happened from the inside out. And then the third level by which the New Testament gives assurance is a new direction. Again, not perfection, but direction. And so the Bible can speak of those who practice a lifestyle and those who do not. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. And here in Ephesians, I'm just flipping over to Ephesians in the fifth chapter, and he says this, For this you know with certainty, 
that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, what things? These people who are characterized by immorality, impurity, covetousness, idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Or right in the book before, in Galatians 5, he says the works or the deeds of the flesh, the sinful nature are evident. He ticks them off, immorality, impurity, sensuality, so on, drunkenness, and things like these, in case I missed something, of which I forewarn you, in which I warned you before, that those who practice such things, those who live this way, those who are characterized by this lifestyle, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So we say, well, you know, he's a born-again fornicator. Is he? He's a born-again, same-sex-attracted homosexual. Is he? You know, not based on the record of Scripture. Those who belong to Christ, he'll say a few verses later, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Paul, likewise, in 1 Corinthians 6, gives another list. And again, he doesn't want us to be deceived. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he says... Um, um, <clears throat> let me just turn there. Here it is. First uh, Corinthians six and in verse, um, 10, he makes it very clear that sorry, in verse nine, he said, let no one deceive you with empty words. Again, very similar because there's a, a parallel with empty words and people who think they're saved, but they're, they're really not saved. And so he's giving this list of what we might call sins, crimes, things that characterize the unbeliever. And he wants to make it clear because the people who are deceived don't know they're deceived. So don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Not fornicators, idolaters, not adulterers, not effeminate. That would be like a male prostitute, the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Uh, then he uses the word for homosexual as it's rendered here. Thieves, covetous, and so on. Drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he said. Now, I can water it down. I can go with Sam Alberry, who said, look, if you have same-sex attraction, as long as you don't act on it, you can be a good Christian. That's what Tim Keller was teaching. That's what the Revoice Movement and the Presbyterian Church of America is teaching. That's what uh, First Baptist Church of Orlando is now teaching, where they're baptizing unrepentant homosexuals. No, you cannot embrace same-sex feelings any more than I can embrace heterosexual lust. Those things need to be brought under the power and the control of God, the Holy Spirit. And if I'm unwilling to do that, that just is proof positive that I have no new nature that desires to please the living God. And then your final question in this array of questions that you ask concerning those who have walked away from the faith, the short, quick answer is that they don't show the mark of genuine conversion. Because in 1 John chapter 2, what the Scripture refers elsewhere to as perseverance, Jesus speaks of those who persevere uh, will be saved. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. And that's what he says here, children, it's the last hour, and just as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have arisen. From this, we know it's the last hour. So we've been in the last hour since um, the Lord sent the Spirit at Pentecost, what Peter calls the last days, because Christ can return at any moment. Um, They went out from us, these antichrists who are against Jesus, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They would have persevered, to use Jesus' terminology in Revelation in the Olivet Discourse. But they went out. 
so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. See what he's saying? He said, these were people who came in the church. They professed Jesus. They said they were born again, but eventually they turned away. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing pastors in Hillsong, Bethel. We're seeing musicians. We're seeing mega church pastors, preachers turning away from the faith. One of the largest churches in Washington, D.C. with 10,000 plus members. The pastor walked away from his wife, divorced her, marches in gay parades. He never had it. Joshua Harris never had it. For if you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never had it to begin with. Anyway, listen in depth. I think I'd do it over four or five sessions. There's one handout for four or five messages that go with that handout. Searchthescripture.org, Basic Discipleship. It's the course we teach every Sunday at Community Bible Church, 45 weeks long. 23 of those weeks are up online with handouts for people to download and to learn. Many churches are using it uh, for Sunday school classes, new Christian classes. I say you can use it. You can Xerox it all, all you want. Just don't take the copyright off of it and Xerox it in its entirety so I'm not misrepresented. Next question. We haven't gotten to a single dictated, I mean, uh, emailed question. These are all live callers calling in today or and dictating their questions, but I think you've got someone who wants to go on the air. Yeah, we've got Matt with us, Pastor right, Carl. Let's go for it. Good morning, Matt. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead and ask your question. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, uh, I think 95% of my question was answered in that last uh, answer and question um, <laughs> okay, good, good, scenario good. there. But um, I was basically calling just to talk about the family life today. I was listening to June 2nd and June, uh, June 1st and June 2nd, uh, family life today and their thing on Pride Month. And they did a whole thing with uh, Sam Alberry and their um, their new sexual, same-sex attracted uh, guy there at family life today. But um, basically what I was asking was, what I was going to ask was, you know, it seems like, you know, like all Christians struggle with something. You know, it seems like maybe he was struggling with something. Is there something more that I don't know about Sam Life Today and Sam Alberry that maybe you could give, you know, give me some enlightenment about, about Sam Alberry and, you know, what it is that he's teaching versus what I heard on the radio, which sounded Christian. But, again, I just want to have enough discernment and understanding to know what's going on. Now. No, That's absolutely. And let me just say, Family Life Today is no longer on WAGP. We removed them. Now, listen, Family Life Today, my dear friend, Dennis Rainey, we were on staff together with Campus Crusade for Christ, as it was called then, and crew is in serious trouble. They are adrift. I hope they make it. There's thousands of good, godly people who work for that organization, but they're in trouble. And I think one clear expression of that is what you've seen happen since Dennis Rainey has... Uh, retired, and it's under new leadership. To have Sam Alberry on is foolish, absolutely foolish. He is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so, yes, we can struggle with anything. Someone can be saved out of a homosexual relationship, just like someone can be saved out of a immoral heterosexual relationship and deal with those feelings, deal with those temptations. Temptation is not sin. Christ was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. It's what we decide to do with that temptation. So we just read from Galatians 5, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh in regards to its desires and its passions. 
And so when you become born again, let's just say you're saved out of a homosexual relationship. Can you still have those feelings? Yes, you live that lifestyle. But there's a new desire on the inside to begin to want to discount and to hate those feelings and not to act on those feelings. So when we deal here with side B Christianity that Alberry and many others are representing, what he taught and what he is teaching, and he's gotten a little slick, I think, because some people have become aware of him and what he is doing. But what he is teaching is you can have these same-sex feelings and you can embrace them. In fact, on his own website, which he had to clean up and take down because he was losing ground in his walk into the front door of the evangelical church, I copy-pasted it. I think I still have it in a file. Many of the things that were on his website that to me were absolutely disgusting. But what he had been teaching is you can, and he still teaches, you know, look, if, if you want to hold hands with someone of the same sex and you have that feeling, that's okay. Just don't act on it physically, all right? And I won't go into too much detail there in light of, um, you know, a lot of young teenagers and children who listen to search the scriptures across the country and download. And, but short of going all the way, He says it's fine. That's what he has been teaching. This is evil beyond evil. Listen, if you're saved out of a heterosexual background and you slept with 100 women and you find Jesus is your Savior, is that temptation going to dissolve? No, but there's a new desire because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation to want to be able to please the Lord. And so you begin to make choices. You begin to bring those passions under the control of God, the Holy Spirit. And Paul gives wisdom. I have a whole sermon uh, someone might want to listen to in Romans chapter 13, and he makes this statement, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, nor in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. The word sarx, flesh, is used in different ways in Scripture. It can refer to the literal skin that covers your skeleton. It can refer to like a worldly way of looking at life. Paul says, I no longer recognize Christ according to the flesh, according to simply a purely humanistic point of view. Or most often in Scripture, the word sarx is used to refer to the sin nature within. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. And so we put on Christ, we starve the flesh, we crucify the flesh, to use Paul's words in Galatians chapter 5. What does that mean? Look, some guy comes in the office and he says, I've been unfaithful to my wife and I met this girl at the office and, you know, before you know it, we were communicating, before you know it, we committed adultery. Look, it didn't just start one day where, you know, he's in bed with her. There's a whole progression of things that happened before that. Maybe the kind of music that he listens to when he's driving in the car. Maybe the kinds of shows that he'll watch, watch at night. Look, most shows on TV are abominable. Now even, even Hallmark has gone and embraced you know, the homosexual lifestyle. There's some new uh, season that they've just came out. I was reading about some, some Western thing they do on Sunday nights, and now they have gay boyfriends 
in, in their show. You don't let your kids watch that. That normalizes what God calls an abomination. This month, the month of June, we are celebrating what God calls evil. That's what we're doing. We're celebrating what God calls evil. And, you know, some of these organizations, I hope Target collapses. Um, They've taken like a $15 billion loss in stock. I hope they collapse. A Budweiser, I'm never in favor of beer companies anyway. They're involved in evil beyond evil. I hope they implode. Um, There are other organizations, like my son is the president of HomeDepot.com, and he uh, was with the CEO of Home Depot recently, and they had a meeting with everyone in marketing because they're not about this. You know, and occasionally there's been some employee that maybe put something up in a lunchroom, and, but they're not about this. And they made it clear, anyone, anyone, anyone who promotes this agenda, we're not about the, this kind of issue. We're about selling product. You can consider yourself immediately fired. That's the kind of backbone that we need in America today. And that's the kind of backbone. And so, so what, what Sam Alberry has done is wicked. And there are too many people who have been buffaloed by him. And he shouldn't be on any Christian radio station. He shouldn't be on any denominational evangelical platform. But, you know, we're shaking at the knees. And this is why what Andy Stanley's church is doing, they're baptizing gay people recently, a transgender, I think it was a man who became a woman or a woman who became, uh, yeah, that was, the, that was the direction it went. And unrepentant, baptized them on Sunday morning. That's evil. First Baptist Orlando, that was once a great Southern Baptist church. They've opened the door to evil. And so, you know, there are these people in these evangelical churches, some who are listening to me, and they have a gay son, and, oh, you know, I love my son. Of course you love your son. You love him unconditionally. But if you love him, you'll tell him the truth, just like you'll tell that fornicating daughter or son who's living with someone that you have all the marks of an unbeliever if this is your direction, if this is your lifestyle. And that's the key word. Can a Christian, could I fall into any kind of sin in Scripture? You better believe it. Let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. So if you reach the point where you think, well, I could never fall into adultery. And look, there's all kinds of decisions you have to make that precedes that. You starve the flesh, you feed the spirit. You know, the Eskimo came to his pastor and he said, it's like I have these two dogs that are warring against each other. And the dark dog always wins against the good dog. And how do I deal with that? And that was the terminology he was using. And the pastor simply told this Eskimo with his sled dogs, which dog are you feeding the most? And that becomes the bottom line. Good question. Let's go to the next. Our next question comes from a listener in Savannah, Georgia. And they would like Pastor Crawl to recommend a good children's Bible. Okay. So um, the Action Bible is a great one. Um, and they have a counter, uh, they have a, a sister one, um, called the, the picture Bible. There's tons of Bibles out there by, um, under the title, the picture Bible, but the one that's done by David C. Cook publications, that is superb. So that's the one we use. We continue to use it's, I know it's in Spanish and in Russian. I'm not sure how many other languages. And we use the action Bible as well with our grandchildren. So those are the two editions we use because they reflect biblical truth. In fact, I have a grandson, um, Charles Castleberry, who um, has 
His parents bought him the app on the Action Bible, and so very time, very often during the day when he's building, you know, somebody loves to build things, he's listening to the Action Bible, and he's getting an overview of the major books of the Bible, and that's largely what they do, but those would be two great children's Bibles I could recommend. All right. All right. So uh, we have one more. I think we've got time for one more uh, question, Pastor Carl. This one comes in as anonymous, and they would like you to please expound on 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 1, it's an interesting text. And by the way, if we run out of time, you can go to searchthescriptures.org. If you don't have the um, app, you might want to uh, download it, and I've taught every verse of 1 Peter. Therefore, just to back it up, uh, therefore, in light of what he's just been discussing— the greatness of Scripture and the inspiration given by the prophets. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's essential to what follows, because as you focus on Christ's return, and that's sadly something that is not taught today, eschatology, last things are ignored and yet it's one of the major motivations that the New Testament epistles and Christ himself give for a holy living. Um, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus, even no matter how bad the persecution is. This life is not forever. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And then he quotes from Moses, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Listen, God the Holy Spirit who lives in you was given to you so that you can live a holy life. And on Sunday, I dealt with the Spirit-filled life from John 15, where Jesus uses the analogy where he's the vine and we're branches. And I underscored four truths that are essential if we're to be filled with the Spirit, because you can't be holy on your own. It is impossible to live the Christian life. Apart from him, you can do zero, nothing. That's a zero with the rim kicked off. You can't do anything in terms of fruitfulness. And so for you to be holy in practice, one, you can't grieve the Spirit. You grieve the Spirit when you do something you know is wrong. The solution is to confess that. You can't quench the Spirit. You quench the Spirit when you're unwilling to deal in the positive realm uh, that which you should do, 1 Thessalonians 5. And so you need to yield your life to God, be willing to do whatever He wants you to do. You're to walk by the Spirit. When you walk physically, one foot is in the air, the other is on the ground. You walk in dependence, and you sow to the Spirit. Galatians, those are four commands. Don't grieve, don't quench, walk, and sow. Sow to the Spirit as you feed on the Word of God. As I said on Sunday, if you have a casual relationship to the Bible, you're not going to be victorious, especially in this day that we live in, days of Noah, days of Lot, that God predicted would happen at the end of the age. Well, I wish I had more time on it, but I have an hour-long sermon on that. If this person who called in wants to listen to it, again, search the scriptures.org, go to the App Store, you can download the app, click on a book of the Bible that's been preached, and you can listen to the messages. Thanks for being with us today. I invite you tomorrow night. Community Bible Church, when the Bible line comes to church, we're going to be uh, having a Bible line during our Wednesday night service along with the Lord's Supper.